Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts here, Dana Osband, here with my friend and Chabruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masach Sachim, daf pei vav, 86. Our daf is in the middle of a discussion about whether the rooftops and upper stories, the Elyonot, um, in the in Yerushalayim or the ones in the Beit HaMikdash were actually considered to be kadosh if they were holy. Um, and the piece of this that's important, obviously, was that if they aren't holy, or they're not really part of the Kedusha of Yerushalayim, if you brought your Korvan Pesach uh, to one of those areas, it would be like you took them out of the boundary and you would no longer be allowed to eat that part of the Korvan Pesach. There's an interesting um, uh, brisa here that's brought. And again, this is really brought as a refutation against Rav's ruling that really the rooftops and the upper stories were not sanctified. Um, but I'm more interested in the content, less in Rav's argument. Right, Toshma. So come and learn. Abba Shaul Omer, Aliyat Beit Kadshei Hakadoshim Chamura, Mi Beit Kadshei Hakadoshim. So the upper story of the chamber of the Kadosh Kadoshim, like the holiest place, was Chamura. Was like the most stringent in terms of kedusha that even the Kadshei, you know, the Kadosh Kadoshim, even then the, you know, the Holy of Holies. Right? Why is that? Shebeit Kadshei Hakadoshim, Kohen Gadol Nichnas Lo Pam Achab Bashana. Right. So once a year, because we know the Kohen Gadol would go inside the Holy of Holies, right? On Yom Kippur. Right. But the upper chamber, meaning the upper area, the roof of this area. But it was only entered once every seven years. Right. And some say that it was entered once every seven, twice every seven years, excuse me, and some say it was only entered once every 50 years. And why was that? Because they needed to know if it needed any repairs. So, you know, there were so many different miracles that took place in the Beit HaMikdash, but it's interesting to see that at the end of the day, it's also just a building and a building that falls into disrepair, needs upkeep and things like that. And, and when we were prepping this, you know, you pointed out interestingly it doesn't explain to us, okay, so you went in and you would, I guess, check and see, you know, did this upper area need to be repaired or not once a year, twice a year, only once every 50 years, according to whichever opinion you're going to follow in this price. But then I would assume they would have to actually do the repairs. And how did that actually get done? So I just, this price sort of highlights for me, you know, sort of the tension between um, what seems, you know, sort of mystical or spiritual about the Beit HaMikdash but yet at the same time, it's a building and buildings fall apart and things have wear and tear. And, you know, sort of seeing that tension being played out in this little brisa. I think it's tremendous. I, you know, the acknowledgement of the Beta Mcdash being a building, just just that on by itself is already a, a huge comment, I think. And then to recognize the fact that it needs repair and that it at the same time doesn't give us any indication of how those repairs were going to take place because the only person who could go in there is the Cohen Gundle. You know, it's, it's, um, I maybe we'll discuss it elsewhere. I understand that. I'm just saying that on the surface of it right now, I think it's just a, a really, um, interesting reminder of several different aspects of the Beta Mikdash. I'm going to jump now to the Mishnah. We have a new Mishnah on towards the end of Ahmed Aleph. <laughs> The issue is this. We've got two groups of people who are eating from two different 
Corbin Pesach, Corbin A. Pesach, and they're in one house and, you know, presumably in one room, right? Because otherwise they wouldn't have any need to turn away from each other. That's what the Gemara, that's what the mission rather says to do, that each group will turn away from the other and eat so that they're not facing each other. The implication being, of course, that then they're not joining with each other to be one group, um, one larger group eating from the Korban Pesach because they are each their own separate groups with their own separate Korban. And the water, the hot water would be in the middle of them, you know, between these two groups. And the idea is that then somebody who's serving, some attendant or waiter could be serving both groups, you know, and without difficulty. So that means that the, the servant or the attendant would get up to pour for the group of which he is not a member, right? Because presumably he's part of the part of one of these. So then what does he have to do? He has to keep his mouth closed and keep his face turned so that he doesn't accidentally eat with the other group, which seems like a pretty, you know, I don't know why this extreme precaution of keeping his mouth closed and his face turned is necessarily necessary. If he knows that he's part of the other group, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to pick up the food off the table of the other group, you know. Um, and then, and then lastly, and this is, I think, such a, such a human comment, um, the bride, right, uh, she will turn her face away from the group and she will eat, which, you know, the risk there is it makes it look like she's eating part of it from a different group. But the idea here is that really she's just, you know, in a newfound group of people with men she may not know, and she's going to be shy or embarrassed or modest or something like that, where she's going to turn away so that they, I guess, don't see her eating because that's a very embarrassing thing. Um, okay, so the idea here, uh, the point here, I guess, is really that we're still identifying exactly how the eating of the Korban Pesach would take place. At this point, we're really down to the eating part of it, right? We've, we're not talking about getting, rid, getting the meat off the bones or any of that. They're sitting down and they're eating, and, um, and the idea is to keep the groups distinct to make sure that no one Korban Pesach has any risk of people who are not part of it partaking from it. Okay. So the phenomenon of eating, right, kind of crops up a whole bunch now in the Gemara on this stuff. First, it starts to talk about, you know, who whose opinion is represented in this Mishnah. But what I really find to be interesting here um, is, well, so first of all, there's a discussion of whether they would put a partition between these two groups, meaning why do they have to go through gymnastics to keep their bodies facing away from each other if they could simply set up a partition? And then you have a very clear distinction between the two groups. You know, that's not always feasible, I suppose. But the idea is that, or you sit down in two groups, and then it is so that the idea is that they would sit down with the mechitza, but then the, mechitza, the partition would be moved. Um, because at that point, I guess, once they're sitting down and facing in the right direction, they don't have to worry about a partition. Um, and then <laughs> the, the Gemara goes on to talk about a case of Rav Huna. And Yardena, I'm going to talk, I'm going to just introduce it and then I'll hand it over to you. Um, basically, I'm going to, here we go. Rav Huna bred Rav Natan Rav Nachman Bar So Rav Huna, who was always known to be a great scholar, came, he's a son of Rav Natan, and he comes to the home of Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak. And they say to him, Amrule, Mashmach, what's your name? Amar Lahu, Rav Huna. He identifies himself as Rav Huna. Amrul, 
native mar apuria 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 i'm sorry it's a hard it's i don't know why i'm having difficulty with this word today okay so they they say um sit down on the bed right because this is a, to give him honor apuria that's the bed yat yatev he sits down yavule kasa they bring him eventually they bring him a cup kasa here is a cup right a cup of wine kable zimna he, he accepts it right away. He doesn't say, no, no, I don't really need wine. Thank you so much. Right? He doesn't go through the motions of the etiquette. He drinks it. Right away, he drinks it. And again, he doesn't turn his face away from them when he's drinking. So, um, Yudin, I'll let you take over, but I just want to establish the puzzlement here because there is clearly etiquette about how eating is supposed to happen you know whether and and all the more so given that he is Rav Huna, right the, he comes in and everybody knows that he's who he is and they give him the place of honor and they bring him a cup of wine right away and they you know offer it and everything and he doesn't go through the the, the proper courtesies so i find it interesting that this is on this is located in this gemara on this mishnah which is talking about how there's such a very a formal physical way of keeping their their carbon pesach groups separated right which is also a certain amount of etiquette and of course a certain amount of halacha rav huna i think we would say the case is much more a matter of etiquette much more a matter of etiquette but i think before that story of rav huna we just get these really nice little pieces of what it was like to eat the korban pesach right you can imagine how crowded yerushalayim was so I imagine it wasn't uncommon that people had to sort of share space, but you wanted to really mark well that it was each one had their own separate group. And I also like the piece in there about the waiter, right? The waiter is clearly Jewish and needs to participate in the Korban Pesach. And that whole thing about, you know, could you sit closer to the waiter so it's easier for them to participate? Um, you know, it's just showing you sort of all these different, I had like a real upstairs, downstairs type of reaction to that page. Um, or to uh -huh. that piece of information, you know, like all those British comedies where they show, you know, what's happening in the servant corner, what, you know, servant quarters and what's happening with, you know, the master of the house type of thing. And I think here it's showing you that, yes, there may have been people who waited on you or served you your meal, which is probably what was commonplace. But at the same time, it also acknowledges that, like, this was an equal opportunity mitzvah that everybody needed to do. And we had to even make accommodations to the waiter at this special time. Indeed. Yes, that is true. I, I did not mean to gloss over these tidbits. I apologize for that. No, 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 that's fine. I, I just wanted to mention that. But let's get back to Rav Huna. Right, so they go through this thing with Rav Huna and finally, you know, Velo had right? He didn't avert his face. And so Amrule, they say to him, this sort of anonymous, you know, chorus of people that he's eating with, my time um Karat Le Rav Huna. They say, why do you call yourself Rav Huna? It's almost like, you know, Again, you could picture this scene being played out in a movie or a TV show, you know, where uh, somebody, you know, an honored guest is coming that nobody, uh, it feels like a plot of a movie. I just can't figure out which movie it was that I've seen, Anne, right? <laughs> you know, where like some distinguished guest is coming and then the guest comes and everybody's like, wait, this was the person? Like, <laughs> they didn't behave like a distinguished guest. So they said, you know, so he says, so they basically say to him, like, you call yourself Rav Huna? Like, you didn't behave in a way that you're a Rav. Amr Luhu, he says to him, Bala Shemani. He says, Yep, that's what I'm called. It's me. And so, my Tama Ki Amr Le Apure Yatsba. Right? So they say to him, 
wait, you were told to sit on the couch and you and, and you sat down. So he said, Amr Luv, he said to him, and then he quotes a Brisek here, right? He says, whatever your host tells you to do, you do, right? He wasn't going to do something or say, oh no, I can't sit there or something like this. Now, what's interesting is this is a Brisek that actually appears in a, one. there's these like sort of small masechto um, that are referenced in the, that we find mentioned in the, uh, Gemara, and this is one that's you know Masacha Derech Eretz Raba, um, and uh, often it's printed actually with Avodah Zara. Um, so when we get to Avodah Zara, maybe we'll talk about it then. But um, this is there that basically anything your host asks for, you do, which I think most of us would agree that's probably how we behave today, right? So then they say to him, My Tamaki Havle Kasa Kablat Bechad Zmina. So he said, Well, when you were given a cup, why did you accept it with the first offer? And so he says to them, He says, you can refuse a lesser man, but you cannot refuse a great man. So in a way, he's actually paying them a compliment. He's saying, like, if you were lesser than me, maybe I would have refused. But you're a great man. I'm not going to be able to refuse you. Right. And then they say, you know, my time is to betrays me. Right. Why did you drink it in two? Like the English is too dress. But in other words, that he drank it in two gulps. Right. He didn't drink it in one gulp. Amr Luhu Ditanya, and again he's gonna quote a Brisa, Hashota Kosobatachat, Hareza Gargan, Gar Garan, right? Someone who drinks in one, you know, one gulp is a guzzler, which again, all of this makes sense. So it's so interesting to me that the stuff they're quizzing him on, I don't know, to me, and would you agree? Like these are all ways that you would behave today, at least. Like these seem like common sense courtesy things of how to how to behave in somebody else's house. Shnaim Derach Eretz, but two is Derach Eretz. Losha. And three is among the haughty. Like if you drink it too slow, right, that's not so nice. And so then they're going to, they'll explain that a little bit more later. My time alone, why did you not, you know, turn your face when you drank? He says to them, he says, no, the only person who has to turn their face is a bride. Nobody else needs to turn their face. So again, this doesn't really have to do with the Korban Pesach. I think it's brought here because he sort of quotes one of the halachot about the Korban Pesach. But I'm puzzled by the story because everything that he seems to do and his reasons for it all seem to be things, you know, the way that we actually behave today. Like, I don't think anything about it when you read it is particularly offensive. And then it's interesting that this... Oh, so yeah. I, th- I thought that it was like, this is a cultural difference. Right. Right. They expect him to behave in these ways. They expect him to, you know, push off the offer. They expect him to drink it this way. They expect him to sit that way, you know, whatever, to def- to defer, but to to decline the honor is what I mean before so that they can then push it on him again. Right. And as far as he's concerned to do so would be rude. He has to take what they accepted, right, what they offered right away. And I feel like it's such a culture clash. I feel like sometimes we see this, I see this, I guess, you know, in Israel when you've got Ashkenazim and Sephardim who have very different cultural norms of exactly this kind of thing. You know, what is, you know, do you do you fill do you refill someone's cup when they tell you no thank you or do you not? And that's a meaning did they they said no, so they must mean it, right? You want to honor that. Or do they say no because that's the etiquette that you say no, but really what that means is yes. And is a really different kind of comportment over well, over food, but in, in terms of just the dynamic of of politeness, I suppose. And of course then one person's politeness is another person's rudeness. And then you have a problem, which is exactly what we're watching here in the Gemara. 
Right. So, and then I think what's interesting is then the second story comes to sort of so an inverse of the dictum, right? Like an inverse of one of these rules, right? Rabbi Yishmael, but Rabbi Yossi, Ikale, Levei, Rabbi Shimon, but Rabbi Yossi, Ben Laconia, right? So Rabbi Yishmael, the son of Rabbi Yossi, goes to the home of Rabbi Shimon, the son of Rabbi Yossi, Ben Laconia. Yahave le Kasa, they bring him a cup of wine to drink. Kable Bechadzmina, Bishate Bechadzmina. He accepts it with one offer and he drinks it sort of with one gulp. Amri Le, they say to him, Lo Savarle, Maha Shotekosobatahad Hareza Gargaran, right? And so they throw back at him the other thing. They say, when you drink it in one gulp, isn't that being like a guzzler? And he says, Amrilahu. So right, he answers, Lo Amri Bikosecha Katan, Vianecha Matok, Ukhu Krise Rechaba. This was not said about your small cup. So in a way, he's sort of insulting them. Your sweet wine. In other words, this is wine that's easy to drink. And my broad stomach. Apparently, he was of a larger girth. And like this was like not a big portion uh, for him to drink. Uh, the Rav Luna piece is interesting because all of his actions are very rooted in halacha. Like he quotes Mishnah, Brysas to sort of prove his point. Whereas this story with Rabbi Yishmael, he sort of gives a let's say a little bit of a funnier answer. You know what I mean? To say like, no, that's why I drank it. Because what you served me really does, it doesn't apply to any of these things. Um, and that was the correct way. But again, I think this just gives a nice little, you know, view into what some of the ways, you know, some of the habits or rituals around eating uh, that took place during this time. Yeah, I, I think also the fact that Listen, that's what we all do, right? There's always going to be some etiquette question around eating. So the fact that they have such a different, uh, both a different practice and also different answers as to why, you know, why they're behaving differently. I feel like the group, I don't know that it was really the same people, but if it were, it sounds like, you know, didn't you learn from Rafuna? Don't you know what you're supposed to do? Which they had initially accused Rafuna of doing the wrong thing, but now they've kind of bought into his approach and then, and then they don't like it, right? When he doesn't follow suit, you know, I, there is something to, with all great respect for the staff, I feel like there is something a little bit comical about the interplay here between the, you know, what you're supposed to be doing, what the, what the, um, what the hosts are expecting you to do, what the guest then does and does wrong. And I feel like, lahavdil, lahavdil, but I feel like we can make a sitcom out of this very, very easily. Oh, yes. I think this could be an absolute sitcom, right? And this, there was something about this whole daf, like the picturing of the two groups together and the waiter sort of running between them and this whole thing with Rav Huna and Rabbi Yishmael. I mean, these are real-life scenarios and you really can, they're vividly, you know, you really can picture them in your head. And But, like, it's so easy to, like, just shift that picture just slightly and then suddenly it's comical as opposed to, you know, just how we... How, of course, it ha- yeah, they had to live. Like, as you said, it was crowded. So they had to set up shop like that. That's really, that isn't yet comical. But then all you need is, I don't know, people can't move their chairs and someone has to get out to, I don't know, go get a drink or go to the bathroom or something. And, and now you've got really, you know, it's enlivened in a whole new way. Now, again, there's, I don't want to, I don't want to make light of the daf. I'm saying that I think that there is something inherent in the telling of the material here that suggests this. Right. And then there's just one last thing I want to mention here, which, you know, then they sort of get a little more serious. Amar Rav Huna, Members of, the, of a group can enter 
you know, three together when they're ready to begin eating, right? And this isn't necessarily about the Korban Pesach. My understanding is I think this is any sort of large meal. But they can leave uh, sort of one at a time, right? And then Rabbah says here, I'm a Rabbah, right? This is only when they, this is only when people come in at the normal time. I can't say, now I'm stuck on that word. Right? And But it's only when the waiter is aware of all of their uh, of their intentions uh, in advance. In other words, they can only finish their meals at different times if they at least told the waiter, because otherwise, and this is what Rashi says, otherwise it's not fair to the waiter because he's going to be waiting on different people at different pi- times. So I thought this was also like a nice way for the daf to end. I don't know. There's something, there's like a real sensitivity to the waiter throughout this whole daf that I was, I, I found very interesting. Yeah, I think um, I think the attention to the side people is also very present here. The same way from even from the beginning of the daf, when we're talking about how you know the fact that the Beit Hamikdash is going to have to be repaired, or here you know the accoutrements to how everybody's going to get their food. I I feel like yes, I think this is part of uh, the whole carbon pesach. I think we've seen it now and again. Um, the what I'll call here the side personalities that become relevant to making sure that everything functions like clockwork. Right. And I guess if I had to frame this whole daf, or at least the themes that we talked about, it's all in the details. Like there's a lot of the good details here, um, you know, in this stuff about like how things actually worked. Well, that's our daf discussion for the day. Rinkus review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hodgkin website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff and some of its details on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.